You know, it's at times like this when I'm stuck in a Vogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice about to die of asphyxiation in deep space that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. Why, what did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. Terrific. Retrogram. Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Program number 8103, The Hookman Cometh, the week of January 12, 1981, may contain Hawk, Hitchhikers, Hulk and Who. Oh my. Welcome back to Retrogram, the logbook.com's retro TV podcast that rewinds to one week in the history of sci-fi, fantasy, horror, superhero, and spy-fi TV, a week somewhere between 1970 and 1990, giving everything a look with some fresh perspective, or maybe it confirms some really old perspectives. This time around, we've gone back to early 1981. The minimum wage in the U.S. has just jumped from 310 to 335 an hour. And there it'll stay until 1990, if you can believe that. Quarterback Eli Manning is mere days old, as is real estate heir Jared Kushner. Richard Boone, who starred as Paladin in every episode of the all-time classic western Have Gun, Will Travel, has just passed away. And looming just days ahead, the inauguration of incoming President Ronald Reagan, mere minutes after which 52 American hostages, taken 444 days ago during President Carter's term in office, would be released by Iran. And the week we're covering, it would see the birth of some TV giants. Hill Street Blues and Dynasty would both premiere during this week, each of them leaving huge impressions on the landscape of television around them for the remainder of the decade and beyond. It was also the week during which the U.S. Food and Drug Administration would approve the first contact lenses that could stay in the eye for more than a day. Oh, and the first production model DeLorean was days away from being constructed. Totally appropriate, since the show's retrogram covers were, for the most part, going back to the future, including one show that had been on the air already, but had undergone a drastic overhaul. Let's rewind to the week of January 12, 1981. The future was beckoning, and shows on both sides of the pond were trying to meet the challenge of showing it. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Episode 2, aired Monday, January 12, 1981, on BBC Two. The story so far. The Earth has been destroyed, and so far as he knows, unassuming Englishman Arthur Dent is the last surviving member of the human race. And the only way he has survived is by being in the company of his friend Ford Prefect, who whisked him away from the doomed planet just moments after revealing that he is not from Earth after all. Using a device carried by Ford to hitchhike on passing spacecraft, Arthur and Ford find themselves on the command ship of the fleet that demolished Earth and all of its inhabitants to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. 
This ship is crewed by Vogons, large, disgusting green humanoids who don't particularly like menial beings who hitchhike aboard their ships. Episode 2 as a Vogon guard looms in the doorway of the cargo hold where Arthur and Ford have been hiding, Ford mentions that they'll be lucky if they just get tossed out of an airlock into deep space. This leaves Arthur wondering what happens if they're unlucky, to which Ford replies that the Vogon captain may stage a poetry reading and then toss them out of an airlock into deep space. The way Arthur's luck has been running today, this is exactly what happens. Vogon poetry, though it's only the third worst poetry in the known universe according to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is mind-wrenchingly, paint-peelingly, chew-your-own-limbs-off-to-get-away-from-it bad. And the Vogons know this. Anyone subjected to a poetry reading is restrained precisely so they can't chew their own limbs off. They have to suffer through every poorly placed syllable and endure the full measure of this pentameter of pain. Ford Prefect is nearly a broken man by the end of it. Arthur tries his luck by offering a literary analysis of the Vogon captain's homemade poem, hoping it might change the captain's mind. It does not. Ford and Arthur are tossed out of an airlock into deep space. In 30 seconds, they'll be dead of oxygen deprivation and the effects of the extreme low temperatures and total vacuum of space. In 29 seconds, they're scooped up by a passing spacecraft, the Heart of Gold, powered by a miracle of technology known as the Infinite Improbability Drive. Ford and Arthur awaken, alive and well, in a holding area aboard the Heart of Gold, as a woman's voice offers a running commentary as the degree of improbability drops toward zero, or normality, whatever that happens to be. Arthur is still trying to get to grips with his new normality when a glum android appears to escort the two hitchhikers to the ship's bridge. This is Marvin, and he's depressed. In the time it takes to escort Ford and Arthur to the bridge, Marvin has Arthur fairly depressed, too. On the bridge, they meet the man who hijacked the Heart of Gold, Saifod Beeblebrox, who happens to have two heads, three arms, and one appalling dress sense. Both Ford and Arthur recognize him. Saifod is Ford's semi-cousin from Beetlejuice 5, but he's also a guy who Arthur remembers meeting at a party six months ago on Earth, where, sporting only one head and two arms, Zaphod lured a woman away who Arthur was desperately trying to ask out on a date. Arthur never saw her again. Until now. It turns out she's the woman whose voice was counting down from improbability to normality, Trisha McMillan, though she has now adopted a spacier name, Trillian. Ford and Arthur need to sit and think for a minute. Zaphod needs a drink. Make that too. As in to be continued. Adapted for TV from the original radio scripts by Douglas Adams himself, who also puts in a cameo in the opening montage as the man who withdraws a huge stack of cash from the bank and then gives up on civilized society, strips down to nothing, throws a wad of pound notes in the air and returns to the ocean. Yes, that was Douglas Adams in the buff. The sad fact of the matter is that in real life, Douglas wasn't much happier than the man he portrayed on screen. The road to this first visual interpretation of The Hitchhiker's Guide was a very rocky one, and rather than landing an entire behind-the-scenes crew battle-hardened in the making of Doctor Who, or Blake Seven, or what have you, Douglas found himself working with producer Alan J.W. Bell from the BBC's Light Entertainment Division, which meant that Auntie Beebe was fully prepared to throw all the resources and experience of a variety show at what could well have taken over as its premier science fiction export. 
There's a large body of received fan wisdom that the Hitchhiker's Guide TV series is terrible. I'm a big fan of puncturing received fan wisdom, so let me offer you an alternative to that. Consider the possibility that TV Hitchhiker's Guide is surprisingly good considering how many obstacles it had to overcome to get made in the first place. Considering that it was fighting an uphill battle against a producer who perhaps, to give the maximum possible benefit of the doubt, didn't have the firmest grasp of the material, this much derided iteration of the Hitchhiker's Guide is quite surprisingly good. It certainly could have been a hell of a lot worse. Despite the BBC being more than ready to pull the trigger on a second season, it was Adams himself who nixed the Hitchhiker's Guide's future TV prospects by stating that he wouldn't agree to it unless he got a new producer. And that was that. One six-episode season and done. Several of the Hitchhiker's Guide cast members had played these roles in the radio series in 1978, including Peter Jones as the voice of the book, Simon Jones, no relation, as Arthur Dent, and Mark Wingdavy as Zaphod. David Dixon took over from the radio series Ford, Jeffrey McGivern, on the basis of his wide, vividly blue eyes, while replacing Susan Sheridan as Trillian is Sandra Dickinson. Now, we've seen Sandra before on Retrogram, way back in the early 70s, when she guest-starred in an episode of The Tomorrow People with her future husband, one Peter Davison. This is one of the areas where you see the hand of Alan J.W. Bell in casting the show. He wanted an actress with a very distinct look, but he also wanted an American to help boost potential international sales of the show. And Dickinson was American by birth, complete with a vaguely Bostonian accent for, you know, added comedy. Some of the radio show's voice actors, namely Stephen Moore as the voice of Marvin and David Tate as the voice of Eddie, the Heart of Gold's chirpy shipboard computer, found it easy to make the leap to TV. What was not easy to bring to TV were the long passages narrated by Peter Jones as the voice of The Hitchhiker's Guide itself, and this episode had more of those passages than most. What was devised by animator Rod Lord, who we discussed previously when talking about the opening titles of the mid-80s Jerry Anderson series Terra Hawks, was a series of animated infographics that would keep pace with Jones's voice, while simple looping animated elements would evoke the limited graphics capabilities of computers. Now, this was accomplished with press type and line art, which were shot on film, black on white, and then reversed into a photo negative, which was then re-photographed with colored lighting gels cut up precisely and attached to the back of the negatives to give the various elements, the moving text, the minimally animated line art, their color. Computer graphics weren't advanced enough in 1980 to create any part of these sequences, so it was all hand-animated on film painstakingly. A young Kevin John Davies, future director of the DVD bonus documentary on the making of this series, did a lot of that photographic grunt work at Rod Lord Studios, and to be honest, it really did have a seismic influence on how viewers thought of computer graphics and infographics for many years to come. Jim Francis, who had been working on Blake 7, was on board as the visual effects designer, while Patty Kingsland of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop gave The Hitchhiker's Guide one of the best TV soundtracks that anyone has ever devised for a science fiction show.
Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Season 2, Episode 1, Time of the Hawk. Aired Thursday, January 15, 1981, on NBC. The story so far. In 1987, NASA launches the last American deep space mission, Ranger 1, crewed by one Captain William Buck Rogers. Now, it could be that one of the reasons this is the last deep space mission is because something goes terribly wrong, putting Ranger 1 and Buck into an orbit beyond the reach of Earth and beyond help. He's frozen but not dead and is revived when Ranger 1 loops back to Earth in its accidentally wide orbit. Just one problem for Buck, it's now the year 2491, and everything and everyone he knew is gone. Buck ends up on Earth itself at the headquarters of the Earth Defense Directorate in New Chicago. Much of the planet has been laid to waste by war and environmental disaster, leaving the populations of outlying areas in a zombie-like state and confining civilization to major megacities like New Chicago. A walking, wisecracking robot, or ambuquad, named Twiggy, is assigned to help Buck acclimate to his new surroundings. Buck also befriends Colonel Wilma Deering, tough as nails, but not unsympathetic to Buck's unusual fate. And with all of the threats that Earth faces, they'll need a hotshot 20th century rocket jockey on their side in the 25th century. Time of the Hawk Hawk and his mate Curry are returning home, the complex of caves where their society of bird-like humanoids lives on a distant world. They've been gone for nearly two weeks, traveling in Hawk's fighter, which is capable of space and air travel. But when they return home, they find that Curry's family and all of their people have been massacred. Among the bodies, however, is a stranger, a human. Hawk recognizes its featherless head on sight. He vows to kill every human he meets in his travels from now on, until or unless he himself is killed. Cut to humans, a whole ship full of them. Welcome to the Searcher, the pride of the Earth fleet, exploring deep space for signs of lost human colonies from before the apocalypse that befell Earth. Buck, Wilma, and Tweaky are all part of the Searcher crew now, serving under Admiral Asimov and alongside the brilliant Dr. Goodfellow and his amazing robotic creation, Crichton, a robot so brilliant and advanced that he doesn't believe he was created by a doddering old human cyberneticist at all. The Searcher happens upon a battered derelict ship adrift in space. Someone's been using it for target practice. Buck and Wilma have to don spacesuits to go aboard. They find frozen corpses, men frozen solid when the hull was breached elsewhere on the ship. But there is one survivor. The ship's captain managed to get his spacesuit mostly sealed before the air ran out. He's woken up and he lives just long enough to tell Buck and Wilma that a hawk did this to his ship. A hawk who targets humans. Then he dies. Hawk returns to Kuri in the caves. He's embarked on many raids against humans and has returned victorious each time. But Kuri feels like he's dying a little bit inside every time he gives in to his urge for vengeance. She's not sure she knows him anymore, and she's scared of what he's becoming. Following the information from the derelict ship, the searcher has arrived in orbit of Hawk's home planet. Buck climbs aboard some stock footage of a Battlestar Galactica shuttle and goes down to have a look, getting permission to land in the capital city of Neutralis. There's Greek architecture, an open market full of folks wearing off-the-shelf Don Post alien masks, and some really, really tall guys. They're the locals. Buck introduces himself and tries to get a feel for where they sit politically and what they might know about a hawk. It turns out that Neutralis is totally neutral. I know if only there was some way for them to make that really obvious to anyone visiting there. They take no stance in anyone's squabbles. They refuel and service ships for anyone, even if the parties involved are opponents in some kind of armed conflict. But that conflict can't be fought in the streets of Neutralis because weapons are forbidden. Nobody wants to answer any more questions than that. And then the really tall guys are called away by a human named Flag. He's complaining that his ship still isn't ready, but the explanation is simple. Flag's ship was far more extensively damaged than he described. It'll be at least 48 more hours until it's ready. Flag is pointed toward Buck as someone who might have a ship he would be willing to lease. Flag and his first mate make Buck an offer. They need to rent his ship. A thousand? Two thousand? Buck tries to broader a little bit, asking for information about Hawk. Flag and his buddy get evasive all of a sudden. Hawk minds his business, and we mind ours. 
Buck suspects there's more to it than that, but he simply shrugs and walks away from the negotiations, even while Flag shouts an offer to buy the ship outright for 5000 Later that night, still parked on the planet, Buck hears a knock at the door of his shuttle. Someone offering information on Hawk, but only if they can come aboard and give it to Buck personally. Buck flips a switch, opens the outer hatch, and hey, it's Flag, and Flag's whole crew. Uh, it doesn't look like they have any plans to vacate the premises of their own free will, but Buck was kind of expecting that. A flip of the same switch closes the outer hatch, and then the inner one. Flag and his crew are stuck in a small airtight chamber, and Buck demonstrates he can suck the air out of that chamber with the flip of another switch. With Flag and his men gasping for air, Buck opens both doors and shoves Flag's crew back off the shuttle. He keeps Flag here, though, determined to find out what he knows about Hawk. At the same time, Hawk is finding out about Buck from the locals as he waits nearby in Neutralis for his own ship to be repaired. Buck threatens Flag's masculinity with public humiliation to get the information about Hawk, and because that's the worst possible thing you can threaten to do to a macho guy like Flag, Buck gets the information he needs and sends Flag packing, though not without Flag promising that they'll meet again. Actually, that promise sounds a lot more like a threat. Buck has a rough idea of where Hawk is now and relays that information to Wilma, asking her to fly a fighter down to the surface and meet him there. Dr. Goodfellow, obsessed with learning whether or not Hawk has anything to do with legends of bird people from the Earth mythology of Easter Island, insists on going along, though Wilma is very aware that the Doctor would be easy pickings as a target. On the planet, he is thrilled to find a statue of Makemake, a god immortalized as a statue on Easter Island related to the very same mythology of bird people that he was talking about. Unseen from a distance, Corey watches Wilma and Dr. Goodfellow as they explore, and she stays out of sight as they enter the caves. A mutant tarantula drops a huge web on them both, knocking them out. Bet you didn't see that coming. Buck lands nearby and makes his way to the caves, searching for Wilma and Dr. Goodfellow, and he finds and frees them, lasering the mutant tarantula while he's at it. Dr. Goodfellow wants samples of wall carvings and statues to prove that Hawk's people created the Easter Island statues and may have been the original residents of Atlantis, but Buck knows Hawk will be here any moment, so short answer, no. Long answer, no. Wilma, get him out of here, get him aboard the shuttle, and go back to the ship where it's safe. Buck meets Curry and says he's looking for a man called Hawk, which is patently ridiculous because Spencer for Hire hasn't even premiered yet. Uh, no, sorry, wrong set of notes. Not the show A Man Called Hawk. Buck is actually looking for the man called Hawk. Curry slips up and lets loose that Hawk isn't there. But Buck knows that if he takes Curry with him, Hawk will follow him. And Curry proves this by screaming Hawk's name, not just with her voice, but with some kind of telepathic contact. It works. Hawk abandons whatever he's doing in space and returns to his planet in a hurry. He spots an Earth fighter coming from his planet and pursues it. Hawk was born to fly, so he can easily outfly even a hotshot pilot like Buck. Back into the atmosphere they go, and Buck's chances are improving, or so he thinks. Corey slips out of her safety harness to try to lean forward and grab the laser from Buck's holster, but that puts her in the wrong place at the wrong time as Hawk strikes from above, the talon-like claws of his fighter ship extended, piercing Buck's cockpit and impaling Corey. Buck agrees to let Hawk land both craft in the jungle so they can help Corey. By the time Hawk finds them, Buck has done his best to stop Corey's bleeding, but both ships were damaged in the rough landing, and Neutralis is a day away on foot. Buck is willing to set aside their differences to see that Corey gets help. Hawk agrees, but he warns Buck that once that is accomplished, it's time for Bird and Man to have a duel to the death. They stop to rest that night, and Hawk lays out the ugly history of humanity, holding Buck, by proxy, responsible for all the crimes the human race has committed. Buck argues that if Hawk's people were indeed hunted down and driven off of Earth by primitive humans, this was something that happened a very long time ago. For Hawk, it doesn't matter. They rest for the night, barely, before continuing on foot. Hawk won't allow Buck to carry Corey for any length of the journey, until he himself is so exhausted that he can barely walk, let alone carry her. They finally arrive in Neutralis, where the local healer says there is nothing she can do for Corey. She mentions a mysterious healer who lives in a mountainous region to the south, who may or may not be able to help. 
Their quest continues, but just as they arrive at the mountain hideout of this mysterious healer with unspecified powers, Buck and Hawk are surrounded by Flag and his men, eager for a rematch. Buck tells Hawk to carry Curry to safety and let him deal with this alone. But Hawk sets Curry down and returns to fight by Buck's side. But there's no reason to. A man appears on the mountain and with just one glowing hand freezes Flag and his crew in place. They're held motionless until Buck and Hawk and Curry are safely inside, and they're spooked enough by what just happened to leave. But Curry is beyond even this healer's help. She slips away while trying to comfort Hawk. Outside, Hawk offers Buck a chance to live, in exchange for Buck's attempts to help save Curry. But Buck won't go. He still has orders to bring Hawk in to answer for his attacks on humans. They fight. No weapons, just fists, until they too are frozen by the man with the glowing hands. A fighter from the searcher arrives as Buck and Hawk lie unconscious. Wilma came to provide backup, but she ends up taking both of them back to the searcher. Before a galactic court on the view screen, judges are ready to rule. Hawk refuses to testify on his own behalf, so Buck does. Buck points out that executing Hawk would simply be the culmination of humanity hunting Hawk's people to extinction. The judges agree not to execute Hawk, but they won't set him free either. Buck invites Hawk to join the crew of the searcher. Their mission is to find lost human colonies, but maybe they'll find more of Hawk's people as well. The end, but also kind of a new beginning. This is the first episode of the second season of Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and it marks not only the introduction of a new character, but a major sea change in the show both in front of and behind the cameras. Behind the scenes, the producer responsible for much of the first season's creative direction, veteran TV producer Bruce Lansbury, had vacated his office to take on the production of a TV movie project in which he had been heavily involved. He had decided he could do that movie, or continue to do Buck Rogers, but he couldn't do both. Perhaps making his decision easier was the fact that toward the end of the first season, Gil Gerard, the star of the show, had demanded significant creative input up to and including altering scripts. If you're the producer in charge of the show's creative direction and writing, as opposed to a line producer charged with overseeing the resources of physically getting the show made, this puts you in a tight spot between a disgruntled star and writers who are likely to be disgruntled that their scripts are being rehashed on stage by a mere actor. So that probably also made it easier for Bruce Lansbury to decide to leave Buck and Wilma behind. Brought in to replace him was another veteran TV producer, John Mantley, late of Wild Wild West, How the West Was Won, and especially, and most recently, Gunsmoke. Notice the pattern there? Mantley made his name producing westerns, but he was also a science fiction fan and felt that the same basic rules about creating compelling characters and relatable situations were universal to any genre. Mantley ditched the entire premise of the first season and a lot of the cast, very much like Professor Victor Bergman of Space 1999 fame, Dr. Hewer, Princess Ardala, Killer Kane, and Tiger Man, oh, and Dr. Theopolis, they were just gone overnight. So was the show's home base on Earth in New Chicago and the ongoing conflict with Ardala's home planet of Draconia. Mantley turned down the opportunity to wrap any of these stories up, preferring a more decisive change in direction, even if it abruptly did away with some audience favorites. Even Mel Blanc was gone as the voice of Tweaky, though that was one decision Mantley ended up backpedaling on before the series came to an end on his watch. It turned out that the audience liked the disco update of a pulp sci-fi hero just fine, but Mantley consciously tried to turn Buck Rogers into something a bit more like Star Trek. And we all know what happened to that show when it was on the NBC schedule. Written under the working title of simply Hawk, this episode introduces Tom Christopher 
as Hawk, the new series regular. Though he'd had some TV and film exposure, primarily in daytime soaps, Christopher was a reliable known quantity on Broadway, and since the daytime soaps in those days tended to be shot in New York City, that was how he had made himself known on TV thus far. The lure of Hawk, however, drew Tom Christopher to California, and he dived into some serious research on his own time into the movement and psychology of birds. At the same time, the show's costume and makeup designers pulled back on their original vision of Hawk as being head-to-toe feathers and gave him a kind of padded suit of armor, restricting the feathers to a prosthetic wig made of dyed chicken feathers. And the wig was so delicate that at least one new one was made per episode. Hawk was intended to be kind of the combination of Mr. Spock and a samurai warrior mindset, so maybe what if Spock was a Klingon instead of a Vulcan? He starts out as an enemy and becomes a begrudging ally to the regulars, and it was that character arc that really hooked an actor of Tom Christopher's caliber to try out for the part. And right after the audition, he was told, It's you. Jay Garner, as Admiral Asimov, is another Broadway veteran who was nearing the end of a decade of trying to do the Hollywood thing. About a year after Buck Rogers was cancelled, he returned to the East Coast and to steady work on Broadway. On the big screen, you might remember him from Silent Night, Deadly Night, and Pennies from Heaven. We lost Jay in 2011 at the age of 82. Also joining the show as of this episode is Dr. Goodfellow, Wilfred Hyde-White. His film career stretched back to the 1930s, which, keep in mind, at the time this episode of Buck Rogers aired, that means just 50 years. He was 76 when he filmed the second season of Buck Rogers, but he was already famous for playing Colonel Pickering in the 1964 film adaptation of My Fair Lady, among quite a few others. He had also played a part in the miniseries that kicked off the Battlestar Galactica saga, and you could also see him in episodes of the original Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible, and of course, he was the voice of one of the gods in Xanadu. We lost Wilfred in 1991. The absolutely marvelous Barbara Luna has been a fixture on our screen since the 50s, appearing on TV in Zorro, Bonanza, Hawaiian Eye, The Invaders, and the Mirror Mirror episode of Star Trek in which she was Marlena, the captain's woman. She also appeared in The Man from Uncle, Mission Impossible, Kung Fu, The Six Million Dollar Man, Project UFO, The Amazing Spider-Man, Airwolf, and the 1980s remount of Mission Impossible. She's one of those that-girls of American television. You recognize her when you see her. Even though Corey is dead at the end of this episode, Barbara would return to play Corey again before too terribly long. And now that we've talked about that girl, Lance Legault as Flag is that guy. You've seen him in everything. In the early part of the 60s, he was appearing in several of Elvis Presley's movies. He appeared in Land of the Giants, Logan's Run, the TV series, mind you, the Rockford Files, Wonder Woman, The Incredible Hulk, Captain America, Battlestar Galactica, Voyagers, the pilot movie of Knight Rider, Auto Man, Airwolf, The A-Team, Magnum P.I., Quantum Leap, and he was a regular on Werewolf. He was on Star Trek The Next Generation and even the final aired episode of the Babylon 5 spin-off series Crusade. Lance died in 2012. And who is by Lance's side for much of this episode? Sid Haig! We've discussed Sid Haig many a time on Retrogram, and here he barely even has dialogue. He's more or less a tough guy extra who seems to outrank the other members of Flag's crew. This episode was directed by Vincent McAvity. 
Now, McAveedy was as rock-solid, reliable a television director as you could get, with a career spanning from the mid-1950s to his final broadcast credit in 2000. He directed several episodes of The Lieutenant, the military series created by Gene Roddenberry before Star Trek, so it made sense that Gene hired him to direct several Star Trek episodes, too. And they were only some of the most memorable installments of the show, including Miri, Dagger of the Mind, Balance of Terror, Patterns of Force, The Omega Glory, and Spectre of the Gun. Vincent directed the 1974 TV movie attempt to pilot a Wonder Woman series starring Kathy Lee Crosby, Yes, you heard that right, and we will get to that someday. And he also directed a whopping 45 episodes of Gunsmoke, so it's a pretty good bet that John Mantley called him in for this one, too. Vincent directed episodes of The Fantastic Journey, Future Cop, The Powers of Matthew Starr, WizKids, Airwolf, Probe, Simon and Simon, where he directed 40 episodes, and his final broadcast directing credit was an episode of Diagnosis Murder. Vincent McAveedy died in 2018, and I bet he had stories to tell about all of that work. Now, I know it's kind of a cliche that I will start going off about what an amazing soundtrack something has, but this episode, it's really more of a made-for-TV movie. This has an amazing score, courtesy of Bruce Broughton, later of such movies as Silverado. Now, this was still fairly early in Bruce's career. He had scored episodes of Gunsmoke, so we have our John Mantley connection again. He also scored episodes of the Logan's Run TV series, How the West Was Won, and Hawaii Five-O, before coming in to score six episodes of this season of Buck Rogers. The jewel in his crown here is that lovely, stately theme for The Searcher, and it crops up throughout the episode with good reason. It's just beautiful. With Broughton's score begging the viewer to take the show seriously, I find myself wondering, why didn't they scrap the theme song and have Bruce musically redefine Buck Rogers as a whole? Because as much as I like the Stu Phillips theme from Season 1, especially as in reinterpreted by Johnny Harris for the end credits, it sticks out like a sore thumb against what the show is in its second season. Now, of course, one reason that they didn't scrap the Season 1 theme is because Glenn A. Larson had co-writing credits on it due to lyrics that were sung only in the pilot movie. So every time it was used to top and tail the series, Larson got some royalty money out of the Buck Rogers theme, and that's probably the real reason it stayed. You'd think that a new showrunner might get a new injection of cash from the studio, but um, think again. The Searcher model, as nice as it was, was a repaint of the Lyran Queen from the first season episode Cruise Ship to the Stars, and even Crichton the Robot was a modified prop, which first appeared in an even earlier season one episode, Planet of the Amazon Women, where two identical props like it can be seen as counters, digital counters, in the scene where Buck is auctioned off to the highest bidder. Now, I found this one line from Dr. Goodfellow kind of... um, kind of telling because it kind of timestamps the episode. This could be as great a discovery as the Tomb of Tutankhamun. Now, King Tut's tomb was discovered by Howard Carter in 1922. That discovery had recently been back in the headlines thanks to a touring seven-city museum exhibit of artifacts from Tutankhamun's tomb, which ran from 1976 through 79 and drew in at least 8 million visitors in that tour of major American cities. 
So, old news, and yet very much of the moment in which this season of Buck Rogers was made. So, going back to Maki Maki, that is a real part of Easter Island's Rapa Nui mythology, a god who created humanity, but also led the Tangata Manu, the birdmen. Makemake was also the god of fertility, but there's a real Makemake in space as well. It's a dwarf planet in the Kuiper Belt beyond the orbit of Neptune, discovered in 2005 by the same team of astronomers who discovered another Kuiper Belt object called Sedna, discoveries that tipped the first domino in the chain that led to Pluto no longer being considered the ninth planet. Makemake has a moon of its own which is still awaiting a formal name, though informally uh, you will find some people referring to it as Moon Moon. A permanent name will be ratified at some point by the International Astronomical Union, and that name will probably be drawn from the mythology of Easter Island as well. And if you think that's cool, wait until you've heard this word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, as well as a decade's worth of experience in writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing about film, television, and comic books, contributing to sites such as fangirlish.com and popcultureretrorama.com. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com, where you can contact her for more information about her writing services. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of thelogbook.com and its podcasts. Incredible Hulk Season 4, Episode 7, Fast Lane, aired Friday, January 16, 1981, on CBS. The story so far. Dr. David Bruce Banner, conducting research into enhancing human strength and abilities, subjected himself to a high dose of gamma radiation. A little too high, and for a little too long. Now when he is angered, when events around him trigger a fight-or-flight response, Banner transforms into the Incredible Hulk, a gigantic, bemuscled green humanoid with astounding strength and a berserker rage over which Banner has no control. When the crisis ends, the Hulk transforms back into Banner, often passing out in the process. The death of a fellow scientist and an explosion at Banner's lab during the Hulk's first appearance means that Banner is assumed to be dead, so he assumes fictitious names and stays on the move, trying to stay ahead of persistent newspaper reporter Jack McGee, the only human being who suspects Banner is still alive and suspects a connection between Banner and the Hulk. Fast Lane Joe Conti is having a flashback, his salad days behind the wheel of a race car. He was a superstar with a bright future until the crash at the Daytona 500 that ended his career. A voice snaps him back to the present. Now he's just a grease monkey fixing other people's cars so they'll perform well enough to get them to work and back. Not really the future Joe imagined, but here he is. He ignores the guy who just walked in the garage door and went to the office. He also completely overlooks the fact that underneath the lining in the trunk of the car he just tossed a spare tire into, there's cash, and a lot of it. 
Oh, oh, sorry, he does notice. He peels back the lining in other parts of the trunk, and whoa, that is a lot of cash. Hundred dollar bills, stacks of them. Joe gets called away by another mechanic to help with something, and he closes the trunk before anyone else can discover what he just discovered. But deep down, he's thinking this is how he buys his way back into racing, with or without all the sponsors he lost after his fateful crash. After work, Joe tells his buddy Neil, who used to be his pit boss in his racing days, about his find. Neil puts his foot down. Forget you saw that money. The only reason that money is there is because it's being hidden from someone else, probably by the mob, and you don't mess with the mob or their money. Then Neil goes back to laughing at the fact that Joe's trying to be a mechanic when he's better off behind the wheel. But Joe just can't take his mind off of it. Neil begrudgingly says that if this is what Joe's going to do to get back in the seat of a race car and get them both back to work, he'll back Joe up to try to make sure he doesn't get himself killed. After all, that's what he's been doing for 18 years now. Who was the guy who walked into the office at the garage? Banner. He's here to apply as a qualified driver to take a newly repaired car eastward. The car makes it to another garage and Flagstaff is scheduled, and Banner continues on to New York by the end of the week for a job interview at a laboratory. Banner's not too impressed by the office manager or his day drinking, and he's even less impressed by the fact that there isn't a car ready. He drops by the next morning, and Joe is suspicious. Joe hands him the keys to the car. The car, you know. Might as well call it Banner's cash cab. Banner's closing in on Barstow when, well, nothing takes hold. It's a drive through nowhere. The Banner is being followed. Joe and Neil are closing in on him, with Neil continuing to ask Joe, Is this worth it? I mean, Joe lying to get off from work, the borrowed car not arriving on schedule in Flagstaff, and who will the mob be looking for? Well, they won't be looking for Joe, they'll be looking for Banner. Right now, Joe's just trying to narrow the two-hour lead that Banner has, and Banner's made that slightly easier by picking up a hitchhiker, a waitress named Nancy, who was trying to flag down a ride to Flagstaff. We interrupt the garage owner's liquid lunch to bring you this shakedown by a guy in a suit. He and his somewhat rough-looking associate are here for the car. The car. And it's gone. And here's the catch. Callahan, the guy who runs the garage and likes himself a bit of liquid lunch, he knew exactly whose car that was and what was in it, and he had promised that he would look after it. But he hadn't figured on Joe discovering what was in the car. He's given one last chance by his associate from the mob to fly to Flagstaff and recover the car from Banner. If he fails to do it... He's had his last drink. Joe and Neil catch up with Banner, who has stopped for gas. There are too many witnesses here. They decide to drive ahead and try to stop Banner on the open road, unaware that Banner has a witness with him. About 150 miles out from Flagstaff, Joe and Neil set their trap, and Banner falls for it. While Neil beats up Banner, Nancy whacks Joe in the face with her purse. Banner lands in a patch of cactus, and you know, between that and the beating he just took, he's starting to get angry. We all know what's going to happen here. Because Neil has turned his attention to helping Joe try to drag Nancy out of the car, Banner's transformation into the Hulk happens completely unnoticed. Nancy's actually putting up a hell of a fight, keeping Joe from getting the car keys, and she watches, more than a little bit terrified, as the Hulk grabs Neil and hurls him over the top of Joe's car, and then picks up the rear end of Joe's car. Joe hits the gas and lets the Hulk tear off the rear bumper and escapes. Nancy also takes this opportunity to run away on foot. With all immediate threats eliminated, the Hulk sits down and chills out. 
Flagstaff, the airport. Callahan has arrived, but he has not been entrusted to bring the money back by himself. That rough-looking mob enforcer has gone with him to make sure he carries out his orders and to leave him face down in the desert somewhere if he doesn't. Nancy is on foot trying to hitch another ride to Flagstaff when Banner shows up in the car. The car! And for some reason, Banner has a fresh change of clothes on. She's happy to see him, and they hit the road again, but they're still being followed by Joe and Neil, and their arrival is being anticipated by Callahan and that mob guy. Oh, and that mob guy, he's planning on double-crossing everyone. He's going to take the cash for himself and run for it. And he's getting antsy because the car, the car, is behind schedule. Callahan traps the crazy mob enforcer in a washroom at the garage in Flagstaff, and, hey, here's Banner and Nancy. Callahan jumps into their car with them, tells them there's a million and a half dollars in the trunk, and they need to drive for their lives, like, now. Mob Dude gets out of the washroom and comes out firing. He grabs the first available car and chases them. Outside, Neil and Joe are parked, waiting for the car to be left alone, and, whoa, the car just left them alone. And someone's chasing them, and now... Joe's car won't start, so all of this was for nothing. The score going into the fourth quarter, Banner, Nancy, and Callahan are running for their lives in the car, with a crazy mob dude right behind them. Banner hangs a sharp turn into, oh, what is this, a salvage yard? The mob dude isn't missing a beat, though. They're sure bumping into a lot of junked cars, though. It's kind of exciting. Banner gets into a tight spot and flips the car, you know, the car, on its side. Nancy and Callahan are able to get out, but Banner is trapped, and now they're all trapped by the psychopathic mob dude. The car, remember, the car is basically torn apart from the inside as Banner hulks out. The Hulk disarms the mob dude, who then tries to get back in his car to get away, except that the Hulk picks up an entire engine block and chucks it at the getaway car. The mobster crashes into the car, popping the trunk open and sending Benjamins everywhere. Mob Dude completely ignores the giant green guy and tries to stuff cash into every pocket he can until the Hulk sends him flying too. Then the Hulk disappears. The police show up. The mob's bracket, whatever it was, has been nipped in the bud. Nancy, who as it turned out really wanted to go from Flagstaff to L.A. to reunite with her young daughter, is on her way back to California. And Banner? Well, he's missed that job interview in New York. For Banner, there's the road. There's always the road. The End As it went into its fourth season, the Incredible Hulk had just been the subject of a battle of wills, a tug of war between the studio producing it, Universal Studios, and the network broadcasting it, CBS. Universal had begun taking drastic measures to cut production costs, complaining that the Hulk's special effects budget was actually larger than that of its Universal Studios stablemate, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, and that was actually true. The Hulk had a bigger effects budget. Buck Rogers' previous season had relentlessly reused shots of the Earth's starfighters and other optical effects, whereas the Incredible Hulk had zero standing sets. Banner's ongoing journeys meant new sets and locations every week. And, of course, hulking out in a different locale every week meant that the Incredible Hulk couldn't do that stock footage thing that Buck Rogers had made a virtue of. One move being considered was introducing a new character with a motorhome, an ally helping Banner search for the cure to his condition, and this way at least the interior set of the motorhome could be amortized over the whole season. Another change under consideration was reducing the Hulk to only one appearance per episode, whereas in the past Banner had hulked out at least twice per show.
This is where CBS stepped in and told Universal, oh, no, you don't. And then over the early part of the summer, when the show should have been filming, there was a game of chicken, and finally CBS blinked. The network coughed up more money for a slightly larger license fee per episode, though the total amount still fell short of what Universal was asking for. The helper character with the mobile home was left on the drawing board. The show still had to be done more cheaply than before, but still meet the quality requirements CBS demanded. This tug-of-war repeated a little bit between seasons four and five, the end result being that The Incredible Hulk chased its full-length fourth season down with a very abbreviated fifth season. Of course, if you were doing The Incredible Hulk on TV today, you'd only get something the length of the fifth season to begin with. There would be no 22 to 24 episode seasons even on the table. Fastlane was written by Ruben Leader. Ruben would go on to write for the 90s Land of the Lost revival, as well as the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Perfect Mate, which was credited to his pen name, Gary Perconti. He also wrote quite a few episodes of the 90s series Kung Fu The Legend Continues, but his best-known work was writing and producing many an episode, as in a couple of seasons' worth, of Magnum P.I. Victoria Carroll as Nancy had quite a history with The Incredible Hulk. This was the actress' third appearance on the live-action series, having played a completely different role in a two-part episode in 1979. But, fast forward a year to the animated Incredible Hulk series that aired Saturday mornings on NBC between 1982 and 83, and she was a frequent flyer voice artist there, with her most notable voice role in the animated Hulk being that of the She-Hulk. You've also seen Victoria in The Immortal, Hogan's Heroes, Love American Style, The Love Boat, Mr. Merlin, Alice, Sledgehammer, and in movies as well. Two of my favorite things among her credits are Kentucky Fried Movie, the first Zucker Abraham Zucker production to hit the big screen with a resounding thud long before Airplane, and The Fastest Guitar Alive, which was a 60s attempt to build a movie around Roy Orbison. Word has it that the box office ticket counters were left crying at the results. <clears throat> anyway, I really like the season where the Hulk catches a bunch of cash in his hands and just stares at it. Lou Ferrigno really does an excellent job here of showing the Hulk being bewildered at the importance of these pieces of paper. What is he thinking? Hulk rich now, or Hulk smash capitalism. Hulk smash puny human stupid enough to risk life for pieces of paper. I think there is a lesson for all of us here. <laughs> Doctor Who Season 18, Episode 19, Warrior's Gate, Part 3, aired Saturday, January 17, 1981, on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet Gallifrey and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekicks in the TARDIS are his robot dog K-9, Romana, a young time lady from Gallifrey, and Adric, a mathematical boy genius from a planet in another universe, visited recently by the TARDIS. 
The tortoise has been stuck in that small and apparently collapsing universe ever since then, trying to find the nearest point to the universe from which the Doctor, Romana, and Canine came, in the hopes that it can make a short, safe hop across the multiverse to its point of origin. But now the TARDIS has landed in a white void whose time and space coordinates all read the same number, zero. A nearby spacecraft, commanded by Captain Rorvik, is also stranded here, her crew enslaving time-sensitive lion-like humanoids called Tharls, who have the ability to navigate out of this null space. One of the Tharls, Birok, escapes from Rorvik's crew and effortlessly enters the TARDIS, warning the Doctor, Romana, and Adric not to trust the crew of the nearby ship. K-9 has been damaged by the rough landing in Null Space, and when Barak leaves, the Doctor follows him, telling Romana and Adric to stay put, which they don't do. Captain Rorvik and his crew have detected the TARDIS and set out to find it, at which point Romana steps outside to talk to them. On the ship, it's been discovered that Romana is also time-sensitive, so Rorvik has her connected to the ship's navigation equipment, but her unfamiliarity with the equipment frustrates him enough that he orders another enslaved Tharl thawed out from stasis but it escapes while being revived and advances on Romana, who is restrained in the navigation chair. Warrior's Gate, Part 3 Romana screams, but the Tharl doesn't harm her. Instead, it releases her from her restraints. Romana hears the voices of the ship's crew closing in as they search for the loose Tharl and tells it to hide. She remains in the navigational chair and plays possum. Behind the mirror, Birok tells the Doctor that K-9 can be repaired, but will have to be brought to this side of the mirror and remain here forever. Birok doesn't stick around for explanations, though, and the Doctor has to follow him through the disturbances in time that exist in this amorphous space. Out in the white void, he know the other amorphous space, an attempt to laser through the mirror has failed. Rorvik orders his crew to break out the big guns, something called the MZ, for one last brute force attempt to break through the mirror and escape. As his crew crosses the void back to the ship to retrieve the weapon, they notice that the journey to and from the ship is growing shorter. Space is contracting, and with it, the time they have left to escape e-space. K-9, having lost track of the Doctor, follows them back to the ship, warning them that the mass of matter here is growing unstable. He follows them right into their ship to offer this helpful information, but is tossed back out. Having followed from a discreet distance, Adric sneaks aboard while the crew is distracted by throwing K-9 off the ship. Adric finds Romana and urges her to hide under the tarp that covers the MZ, so when the ship's junior crew members wheel it down the ramp and outside, Adric and Romana get a free ride out of the ship. But Romana's plans evolve being inside the ship, not outside it. So back they go, by way of the gaping hole in the ship's hull that still needs to be repaired. Romana discovers that the hull is made of dwarf star alloy, a material of such incredible density that it's immensely heavy, explaining why the ship has warp engines that far outclass what a ship this size would normally have. K-9 finds Romana and Adric while they are trying to be quiet, and helpfully begins warning them of the mass instability and the continual shrinking of space. And that's when the ship's crew shows up. Adric follows K-9, but Romana is captured again, yelling to Adric, Take K-9 through the gateway and take him to the doctor. Before Romana can be restrained in the navigational chair again, however, the Tharl once again comes to her aid, and by touching hands, they are able to leave the ship altogether and head toward the gateway. The doctor, in the meantime, is behind the gateway, behind the mirror, vexed by windows that he can't see through. A young female Thoral appears to lead him to a balcony overlooking a banquet hall, looking back in time to the days when the Tharls ruled. 
but it seems that the enslaved once had slaves of their own, humans who were not treated kindly. When Romana and Birak look out into the same room from a nearby balcony, they see the banquet hall as it is now. No Tharls, just Rorvik and his crew, wheeling the MZ into place to fire it at the mirror. Romana and Birak slip past them and go through the mirror. The past, the same banquet hall. The doctor tells Birak, past Birak, that the Tharls live like kings, and Birak happily replies that they are kings. The doctor isn't impressed. I mean, he's really, really unimpressed to find that these time-sensitive lion people he's trying to free from the yoke of slavery are themselves the oppressors in another point of their history. And they have neglected to ever mention this while asking for his help. You know what they say about politics at the dinner table. Knives are drawn. Teeth are bared. The thorals aren't happy. Then the door of the banquet hall bursts open, and robotic knights, who the doctor had noticed before rusting away under dust and cobwebs, charge into the room. Romana, now in the same time zone as the doctor, tries to warn him of the impending danger, rushing to his side, and suddenly they're in the present, surrounded by Rorvik's crew, all of them with their guns drawn. This is a problem to be continued. With its white voids and attempts to travel across the multiverse and a layered narrative about the roles of slavers and the enslaved sometimes changing hands in history, Warrior's Gate is pretty complicated fare for Doctor Who, and very much in line with the vision of new showrunner John Nathan Turner, who had taken over between seasons. Nathan Turner's goals included making the show look more expensive than its previous season, even if it really wasn't that much more expensive from a financial standpoint, and turn it into serious high-concept sci-fi, rather than the kind of whimsical adventure romp it had become in the late 70s. The fact that this approach ran counter to how Tom Baker had grown accustomed to his show being run led directly to Baker deciding that this was his last season as the Doctor. John Nathan Turner was rotating a new set of companions into the show and seeing off the last of the 70s companions. The following week's episode, Part 4 of Warrior's Gate, would be the final appearance of Romana in TV Doctor Who and K-9's last appearance in canonical TV Doctor Who until 2006's school reunion. It's strongly implied that this is also the K-9, keep in mind that there were two in the TV series, who later gets his own spin-off series in the 21st century, in which he changes into a more streamlined, futuristic form. Huge changes were afoot in Doctor Who in early 1981, all of it leading to Tom Baker handing over the TARDIS keys to Peter Davison a couple of months later. Who wrote and directed Warrior's Gate? <laughs> oh, better sit down for this one. To quote a certain social media site's most infamous relationship status, it's complicated. The credit on screen for Warrior's Gate is given to Steve Gallagher. Or was it? This story replaced a long gestating four-part story called Sealed Orders, written by Christopher Priest, which would have seen Gallifrey getting involved with extracting the TARDIS from East Space, and would have revealed that there was a hidden reason why Romana had originally been assigned to help the Doctor find the key to time. Gallagher was brought in to replace it, submitting a four-part story called Dreamtime, many elements of which do make it into Warrior's Gate, but what you see on the screen was not necessarily what Gallagher wrote. Script editor Christopher H. Bidmead had to heavily rewrite the story, but even then, Tom Baker and Lala Ward weren't happy with the result, claiming that their characters weren't behaving as they had portrayed them in the past. Director Paul Joyce began rewriting scenes on set, 
allowing the actors to have input, and this brought the director into direct conflict with the show's producer, John Nathan Turner. And when you have a visiting director clashing openly with the showrunner, you pretty much know what the result will be. Paul Joyce got fired in the middle of filming. Much of the second half of the shoot was directed by production assistant Graham Harper, though the credits continued to list Joyce as director, and he was indeed rehired before production was completed. So, without credit, you have the first Doctor Who directing work done by Graham Harper, who did graduate to direct for the stories The Caves of Androzani and Revelation of the Daleks in 1984 and 85, respectively, and returned to direct quite a few episodes of the revived Doctor Who during the David Tennant era, Rise of the Cybermen, Age of Steel, Army of Ghosts, Doomsday, a.k.a. the one where Rose leaves, 42, Utopia, Planet of the Ood, The Unicorn and the Wasp, Turn Left, The Stolen Earth, Journey's End, The Waters of Mars, and the short charity sketch Time Crash, which was modern Doctor Who's first multi-Doctor story. Graham also directed several episodes of The Sarah Jane Adventures, a Doctor Who spin-off series. By the way, while it's interesting that Graham Harper sort of began his long and illustrious Doctor Who directing career here, let's not crap all over Paul Joyce, who was well known for directing many a documentary, including Sam Peckinpah, Man of Iron, 2001, The Making of a Myth, Marlon Brando, The Wild One, Stanley Kubrick, The Invisible Man, and Chris Christopherson, His Life and Work. Stephen Gallagher, while perhaps only nominally the writer of what wound up on screen... Nominal. Oh, thank you, Nominal Bot. Hey, it's Nominal Bot! Nominal. Um, Steve Gallagher hasn't done badly for himself, either. He's a novelist with a long list of books to his name, including The Bedlam Detective, The Kingdom of Bones, Downriver, and October, with a K. He also got to adapt October as a TV miniseries in the 90s, and created the short-lived Patrick Stewart sci-fi series, Eleventh Hour, in 2006, which lasted only four episodes before being adapted for the U.S. market without Patrick Stewart. At one point, Derek Jacobi was being considered for the role of Captain Rorvik, which eventually went to Clifford Rose. Now, David Weston, who played Birok the Tharl, had a prior Doctor Who appearance way back in February 1966 in the William Hartnell story, The Massacre. Of the 1980-81 season of Doctor Who, which included Tom Baker's Swan Song, this episode, rather surprisingly, got the largest audience, 8.3 million viewers. I wonder if they were as confused as I was as to what was happening here. Now, don't get me wrong, once it's all explained to you, by fan analysis or the Target Books novelization or the internet or what have you, Warrior's Gate is a really interesting story and is playing with some really high-concept hard sci-fi stuff here, more so than most of Doctor Who. But this season's script editor was Christopher H. Bidmead, who had been keeping up with that sort of thing, and so Warrior's Gate was very much just one part of an intellectually challenging season. This four-part story also had to wrap up the stories of Romana and K-9, and give the Doctor and the TARDIS, with Adric still aboard, an exit from the collapsing universe of eSpace and back to the known universe, closing off a storyline that ran for 12 weeks total. There's almost too much stuff going on there to also ask the audience to get their heads around the destabilization of matter and the shrinking of space-time. It's complicated. 
January 1981 was a time of a changing of the guard, not just the obvious political implications of the impending inauguration day, but a change in TV tastes. One could argue that the intersecting A, B, and C plot style of Hill Street Blues would have a huge impact on later TV, including sci-fi shows such as Star Trek The Next Generation. But the new rules of TV writing weren't in place yet, though this week's entries from across the pond may have been way ahead of their time in that regard. The Buck Rogers and Incredible Hulk episodes were very much old-school action-adventure TV, despite both shows being in the process of desperately trying to pivot to a newer, more budget-conscious mindset. All of them were plowing an ambitious new path into the 1980s. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was by Philip Gross and DZ, also licensed under Creative Commons. If you like what you hear, you can join the ranks of the logbook.com's Patreon supporters. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcasts and videocasts going. You can be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. If ongoing pledges of support aren't your thing, you can pour us a coffee, that's ko-fi.com slash the logbook, and make a one-time donation. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, yes, shower curtains, and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard, Star Trek Lower Decks, and be ready for Star Trek Strange New Worlds when that lifts off. You can sign up for a free week of Paramount Plus through our links, and if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the Logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Nathan Turner's goals included making the show look more expensive than its previous season, even if it really wasn't that much more expensive from a financial standpoint, and turn it into serious, high-concept sci-fi, <coughs> rather than sneezing, rather than the kind of whimsical adventure romp it had become in the late 70s. Nominal.